Jacob wrestles with God. And Jacob was left alone, and a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. When the man saw that he did not prevail against Jacob, he touched his hip socket, and Jacob's hip was put out of joint as he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go, for the day has broken. But Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. And he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. Then he said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel. For you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And then there he blessed him. So Jacob called the name of the place Penel, saying, For I have seen God face to face, and yet my life has been delivered. The sun rose upon him as he passed Penel, limping because of his hip. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Martin. This summer, I was uh, blessed to read a book by Dan Allender called Leading with a Limp, Take Full Advantage of Your Most Powerful Weakness. Dan actually uses the story of Jacob wrestling with God to help illustrate the importance of being humble. In fact, he makes the point that we are most effective as leaders when we have a humble posture. In this story, we can see that, well, that Jacob, prior to wrestling with God, was Well, he was known as a a shrewd deceiver, but after Jacob wrestled with God, he was given a new name, Israel, which means to strive with God, and he was given a permanent limp that always humbled him. Every day when Jacob would get up to walk, he would limp, and he would be reminded of God's great power and his own weakness. And Daniel point, uh, Dan Allender points out that we lead most effectively through weakness, In fact, as we look at all of Scripture, we can see that throughout the Bible, God calls humble men and women of God to do his will. God is looking for the the humble, those who will humble themselves before the Lord to do his work. In Isaiah chapter 6, when the prophet Isaiah comes into the presence of Almighty God, he is overwhelmed by God's holiness. He's reminded of his own sinfulness, and he says, woe is me, I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. In this humble state, God then calls Isaiah to lead and to speak God's word to the people of Israel. It's an encounter with the living God humbles us and it ultimately transforms us. To see one of the best examples of how an encounter with God humbles someone and completely transforms them, and to see how this might help us be transformed as well, I would encourage you to turn in your pew Bibles to the book of Acts Chapter 9, Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. It may be found on page 1167 of your Red Pew Bible. Acts chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. But before I read God's word, let's call upon his spirit again to guide us in the reading and preaching of his holy word. Please join me as we pray. Holy Spirit, we thank you again that you inspired Luke to put pen to paper, to give an orderly account of the earliest church. Oh, Lord, as we read your word, as we read this story about the radical transformation of Saul, who, who becomes the apostle Paul, God, I pray that you might open our eyes, open our ears, 
and open our hearts that we might be transformed at the reading and the preaching of your holy word. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable in your holy sight. Through your son's precious name we pray and all God's people said, amen. Acts chapter nine, beginning with verse one, listen to the word of the Lord. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. Now as he went on his way, as he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, but rise and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. Saul rose from the ground, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. And for three days he was without sight and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise and go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul, for behold, he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints at Jerusalem, and here he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, for I will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road by which you came has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from his eyes and he regained his sight. Then he rose and was baptized and taking food, he was strengthened. For some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus and immediately he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue saying, he is the son of God. And all who heard him were amazed and said, Is not this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? And has he not come here for this purpose to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength and confounded the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. Here ends the reading of God's word as the prophet Isaiah tells us the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord stands forever. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. 
I want to stop there just for a moment. Many of us who grew up in the church were very familiar with this story, and we get real excited to hear about the radical transformation that happens to Saul as he's on the road to Damascus. Of course, Saul is his Jewish name. His Roman name is Paul. He helped write much of the New Testament. He becomes an apostle and, and is a leader of the church, planting churches all over the Mediterranean. And, we, and that scene is so dramatic and so exciting, but, but if we're not careful, we can miss a major point of this story. I believe it's found in the, in the first two verses. But Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, Saul is viscerally angry with the followers of Jesus. He wants to see them die. If we read Acts 7, you'll remember that they stoned Stephen to death. And and, and we read in Acts chapter 8, verse 1, on page 1165 of your pew Bible, it says, Saul stood there and, and approved of his execution. Saul was eager to see the the Christians die. Saul was glad to see Stephen die. Now he's gone to the high priest to to get orders from the temple so that he might go to the synagogues in Damascus, a city that had many Jews and were believed to be many Christians, so that he might arrest them and take them back to Jerusalem. Saul is viscerally angry, upset, and he's willing to travel 135 miles by foot to Damascus to go persecute and arrest Christians. That'd be like us walking from here to Lubbock. Why would we want to do that? (laughs) Simply to catch some people who have some false teaching or some false doctrines? Why is Saul so upset with these earliest Christians? I know Saul thought that the disciples of Jesus were preaching heresy or false doctrine, but should false teachings or false doctrine lead us to seek the death of others? A few years ago, uh, Mitt Romney was the Republican candidate for president uh, in the United States. Of course, he lost that election. But while Mitt Romney was the Republican candidate, I had several, several people ask me, is Mitt Romney a Christian? Mitt Romney is Mormon. He was a missionary with the, uh, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. He's a, a faithful Mormon. And people would ask me, he's a Mormon. Does that mean he's a Christian? Well, Mormons, if you're not aware, they don't believe in the Trinity, Uh, They do recognize the Old and New Testament, only the King James Version of that Bible, but they also have a a Book of Mormon that that they believe, or it's alleged, that Joseph Smith in the 1800s was given uh, by the angel Moroni in New York. And the Book of Mormon uh, has a very different theology than what we find in the Bible. And just a little side note here, we should always be just a little bit suspicious of any religious movement that has a book where one person is the primary author. Joseph Smith, primary author of the Book of Mormon, uh, Muhammad, primary author of, Quran, of the Quran. And both of those books completely contradict this book. And this book, the Bible, was actually written by many men over centuries. And if you read the New Testament closely, you'll see that the New Testament writers are very careful to make the point that, well, the Old Testament is the continuation of the story, of God's amazing story. New Testament authors want us to see that Jesus is a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In fact, Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, I have not come to abolish the law of the Old Testament, but I have actually come to to fulfill the law and the prophets. Yes, it's true, Isaiah wrote Isaiah, and you've got Luke writing Luke, but both men inspired by the same spirit to share God's word, to let us know what God's will is. And the theology of the Book of Mormon, unfortunately, is is very different from the theology of the New Testament. The Book of Mormon emphasizes our need to do good works in order for salvation. The Book of Mormon is viewed as heresy by every mainline denomination, Roman Catholic, 
Greek Orthodox and Protestants, we all reject the Book of Mormon as, as heresy. Now, I'm not the judge of, of, of Mitt Romney. Uh, God is Mitt Romney's judge, not me. But when asked if Mitt Romney is a Christian, I have to say, well, if Mitt Romney believes in the Book of Mormon, I would have to say he's, he's really not a Christian as, as we understand that because well, we believe that Jesus Christ is the only Son of God. And then we believe that when Jesus died on the cross, he paid the price for all of our sins. And we're, we believe that what the Bible says, we're, we're saved by grace through faith. It's not by my works, but simply by faith. Now, theologically, I disagree with, with Mormons. But I love Mormons. One of my best friends in high school was a Mormon. Uh, one of my good friends in college was on my intramural basketball team. He was Mormon, had a great jump shot. I liked him a lot too, you know. I got a lot of Mormons that I love and I, and I pray for them, but I, but I disagree with them theologically. But there's no way I would travel 135 miles by foot to go find some Mormons and to arrest them for bad teachings. Yet that's what Saul's doing. And even though I disagree with Mormons, I recognize that, well, that they do come from the Christian heritage. They have a Christian heritage, the Christian tradition. And all the earliest followers of Christ, well, most of them in the first century were Jews. They recognized the authority of the Old Testament. In fact, Jesus was a Jew, so why does Jewish Saul, why is he so dead set on persecuting fellow Jews who are now following a Jewish man named Jesus? Christianity has Jewish roots. Most of the earliest Christians were Jewish. Why is Saul willing to travel 135 miles you know, one way, and that's, a, goodness, 160, 170 miles round trip to, to kill, to persecute, to arrest Christians. Would you be willing to walk from Amarillo to Lubbock to go arrest some Mormons? I wouldn't. And yet Saul is. Why is Saul breathing threats and murder against the disciples of Jesus? Well, I believe that as... Saul hears the gospel that the disciples are preaching. He hears very clearly that in order to follow Jesus, we have to repent. We have to turn from our ways and we have to change. And ultimately, Saul in his pride, he doesn't want to change. Saul is a a Pharisee, a a Jew among Jews. Uh, Saul was a a Pharisee among Pharisees, actually. He's an expert in the law. In fact, he writes about his uh, status in the Jewish tradition in Philippians chapter 3, verse 4 to 6. It can be found on page 1249 of your Red Pew Bible. Philippians chapter 3, verses 4 to 6. He writes to the church in Philippi, If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day, that's exactly when you're supposed to be circumcised, according to Jewish law, eighth day, of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, an expert in the law, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. Saul was an excellent Jew. He was a Pharisee among Pharisees. When it came to the works of the law, Saul seemed to be blameless. And yet, after his conversion to Jesus, Saul writes, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Isn't that interesting? Saul was a Pharisee from the tribe of Benjamin, an expert in the law. According to the Mosaic law, he was blameless. He was circumcised on the eighth day. As a Jew, he had everything going for him. But the gospel of grace, the disciples of Jesus were preaching, and that Jesus ultimately reveals to Saul, let Saul know and every other Jew that they aren't saved by their works. Rather, they are saved by grace through faith in Christ. 
the gospel of grace that the disciples of Jesus were preaching, let the Pharisees and all of the Jewish leaders like Saul know that despite their rules and regulations, they weren't any better than anyone else. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. In fact, according to both Stephen and Peter, these religious leaders, these Jewish leaders were actually responsible in Jerusalem for killing Jesus, the Son of God, the Messiah. And Saul doesn't like that message. It's Saul's pride that prevented him from initially hearing and believing the gospel of grace because ultimately Saul did not want to change his paradigm. He wasn't willing to change his worldview. The gospel of grace changes everything. Are we humble enough to allow the gospel of grace to change us, to change and abolish our worldly paradigm. You see, beginning as children, we're taught that we are measured by what we do and what we accomplish. You know, the best students make the best grades, and so we work very hard in school so that we can win the accolades and the awards, and the the best athletes are the ones who start, and they're the ones who win the prize, and we're Americans, and we don't remember who finished second place. We only want the gold medal, right? Does, Does anyone remember in 1992... Uh, In the U.S. Olympics, they brought the dream team together. It was Michael Jordan and Magic Johnson and Larry Bird and David Robinson, Patrick Ewing, the best basketball team ever put together, and they won the gold medal. Does anyone remember who won second that year? No, because we're Americans. We don't count second. Nobody cares who gets the silver. We're all about the gold. They're measured by what you do. Yet the gospel of grace tells us that we're not measured by what we do. We're measured by what Jesus has done for us. The gospel of grace humbles us and helps us see that we're no better than anyone else. We're all sinners in need of God's grace. The ground is truly level at the cross. The gospel of grace helps us see that we are righteous, made right with God and in the eyes of God, not because of what we've done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. The gospel of grace helps us see that we're loved by God because he loves us not because of anything we've done. God loves us because he loves us and he shows us at the cross of Christ an unconditional sacrificial love. And so our identity and our sense of worth is ultimately not based on our achievements, but rather based in our adoption as children of the Most High God through faith in Jesus Christ. True confession here, growing up in Midland, Texas, I played a lot of sports because there's not much to do in Midland uh, as a boy. That's what you do. And so I played football and I played basketball and, and baseball and soccer and I, I loved all four of those sports and enjoyed playing it. And I can be honest with you, growing up as a kid in Midland, I hated losing. I hated losing more than I loved winning. I was very competitive. And if I lost, I'd get really upset. And I understand I got that from my mom's side of the family. She's got a bunch of coaches in her family. So I got this competitive nature. You know, I don't, I don't want to lose. But as I've grown in my faith in Christ, as I've kind of begun to gain an eternal perspective about who God is and, and how I'm measured, it's not based on winning or losing. Now, my identity is found in, in a relationship with Christ. Now, I, I still prefer to win today. If I have a choice, I'd rather win than lose, but it's not that big a deal. We can let that go. Our identity is not found in what we do, but rather in, in who we are in Jesus Christ. The gospel of grace helps us see that win or lose, we're still children of the Most High God. Unfortunately, so many of us grow up seeking the approval of man rather than the glory of God. Man's approval in this world comes through achieving. If you achieve, you will be celebrated and others will approve of you. 
But God's approval comes simply through being. Being in a relationship with Jesus. Through a relationship with Jesus, God receives us and he loves us. The gospel of grace helps us see that God loves us because he loves us. The gospel of grace helps us see that, we're, that while we were still sinners, rebellious against God's word, God did not abandon us in our sin. No, he actually became one of us. He, he sent his son who was born of a virgin, fully God and fully man, in a, in a manger, a humble circumstances. And he grew up among us and he taught us and he healed us. And he did for us what we can never do for ourselves. He lived in perfect obedience to our Heavenly Father. Then he died as the perfect sacrifice for our sins with his death on a cross. And then on the third day, he proved to be who he said he was when he rose again and and conquered sin and death on our behalf. And, And now we can have the assurance of eternal life and the gift of a new life if we simply believe in him, if we simply receive that gift of grace through faith. Yes, the gospel of grace helps us see that No one is better than anyone else. We're all sinners saved by grace. And this conversion story of Saul actually helps us see that even our faith is a gift from God. If you will see closely, Saul wasn't on the road to Damascus to become a Christian. He wasn't looking to follow Jesus. He was actually looking to persecute the church. Yet God in his sovereign will chose to blind Saul on the way so that he wouldn't be able to persecute the church, so that Saul's heart might be changed. In fact, we read from Acts chapter 22 that that this event, this blinding happened during noon. It was during the highlight of the, the sun is at its brightest, that the glory of Christ shone on Saul in such a dramatic way that he was blinded, blinded by the light of Christ, brighter than the sun of day. It's an encounter with the living God is both humbling and transforming. Blinded and humbled by Jesus, Saul is then led to a house where he does the only thing he knows to do. Saul fasts and prays. Then Jesus calls Ananias to speak to Saul. Jesus gives Saul a vision of a man named Ananias who's going to come and help him give him sight. And, and, and so Jesus is laying out the path so that Ananias might help bring Saul to Jesus. He's paving a way. This is so instructive for us today as followers of Jesus. If we have a friend or a coworker or a classmate or a loved one who is far from Christ, well, we need to pray. We need to pray for them because it's God who ultimately gives them eyes to see. It is God who is going to knock on the door of their heart. As Ezekiel tells us in 36, it's God who's going to take their stone of hard stone of flesh, hard stone, hard-hearted stone, heart, and give them a, a wonderful open heart of flesh so they might receive God's word. It's 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse three, Paul says, no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. It's the spirit of God that begins to quicken our heart to the reality of who Jesus is. When was the last time we fasted and prayed for someone that we know is far from God? When was the last time we fasted and prayed at all? Throughout the Bible, we'll find that people will fast and pray to humble themselves before God, to connect to God, to hear from God. We can't make God speak to us, but when we intentionally fast and pray, we are slowing down, we are humbling ourselves, and we're in a better position to hear what God is trying to say for us. Before leaving Dallas and coming here to Amarillo, I spent a whole day fasting and praying with my wife. My wife, we wanted to make sure that this was God's call for us. We wanted to make sure we were hearing God clearly. Now, a quick word on fasting here. In verse 9, we're told, for three days, three days, 
Saul was without sight, and he neither ate, and he didn't drink. That is remarkable. I would not encourage that. Uh, if you're medically able, uh, it, it's, oh, I would encourage you a 24-hour fast. The best way to do this, if you're medically able, is to have a big lunch, skip dinner, go to bed, skip breakfast, and then have a lunch. But throughout that 24-hour period, keep drinking lots of fluids. We need liquids, we need, we need juice, and we need water. But I can tell you from my own experience, when I have fasted, my metabolism slows down. My mind, which is often racing with many thoughts, slows down. And my ears perk up as I read God's word. In fact, Richard Foster in his Christian classic Celebration of Discipline talks about how when you would normally eat during a fast, take that time to read and to meditate on God's word, to to feast on the word of God. For as Jesus tells us, man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. In fact, we know that from, uh, from Matthew and Luke that Jesus spent 40 days in the wilderness fasting and praying before he begins his ministry. Now, I would not suggest 40 days. That was miraculous that Jesus did that. But a 24-hour fast is very doable while you drink lots of liquids during that time. We can see from Saul that as he prayed and fasted, eventually he moved to faith-sharing Saul was converted from a persecutor of the gospel to a proclaimer of the gospel. We know from our own experience that most of us come to Christ by by having others share the gospel with us. If we really think about it, that's actually kind of true of Saul too because he saw Stephen, Stephen who was martyred, who was killed for his faith. He saw Stephen and killed and stoned and, and, and he heard Stephen say what he says in Acts 7 verse 56. Stephen looks up at heaven and says, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. He heard Stephen pray for those who were about to stone him, just as Jesus prayed for those who were were crucifying him, saying, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Yes, the the life and the, the words and the death of Stephen certainly challenged Saul's paradigm. Do our lives challenge the paradigms of our culture? Through prayer and fasting, Are we walking humbly with the Lord so that we're loving God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and we're loving our neighbor as ourselves by treating them the way we would like to be treated? Through prayer and fasting, are we able to take an insult from someone without becoming defensive and lashing out in response, but rather offering forgiveness and love? Through prayer and fasting, are we boldly sharing the gospel with others? Well, it might help if we did some prayer and fasting. He says, we pray and fast, we slow down, and we hear what God wants to say to us, and then we can live it out. We pray and fast, we humble ourselves before God, and we're able to hear God more clearly, so we become better instruments of his grace. God used prayer and fasting to transform Saul from a man who was persecuting through the church to one who began to proclaim the gospel. May we take the time we need this week to pray and to fast for those who are far from God, to pray and to fast so that we might hear God and become an instrument of his grace. Let's pray. God, I thank you so much for the example that we have of Saul who, after being humbled by you and blinded on the road, Lord, he he fasted and he prayed. And we see throughout scripture, men fast and pray. King David fasted and prayed. Jesus fasted and prayed. Lord, the earliest disciples fasted and prayed. Lord, help us to make that a rhythm of our lives. And we fast and pray so that we might hear you more clearly and do your will here on earth, that we might become a better instrument of your grace. We pray this in the strong and precious name of your Son, who is the Christ, and all God's people said, amen. Amen.
Well, you know, last week we had a